And for our message this evening, we will be talking about Paul and his time that he spent in Athens. And we'll be reading now from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. This is a little bit longer passage, but it describes the situation in Athens and how Paul responded to what happened there. Now, starting Acts 6, 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
When we look at this passage, and it's a description of what happened to Paul when he came to Athens. And he was kind of left in Athens, and he was waiting for the rest of his team to join him there. And Paul realized that he wasn't just going to sit around in Athens and do nothing, but that the Lord wanted him to teach the people who were in Athens. He was to preach the gospel there. As you may remember from history classes or from your own reading, Athens was a wonderful city. It was known for philosophy, Greek philosophy. It was known for its university system. There are many different schools in Athens. It was known for its artwork, and there were art schools there too. And its literature and just its cultural culture in general. A very beautiful place to visit. And Paul was prepared to speak, teach, communicate the gospel in every circumstance. And perhaps we can summarize some of the motivations that Paul used or the mode of operation that he used whenever he came to a new place. And he said in Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Paul just didn't stand on the street corner and say, Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins. You need to repent. But he prepared himself. And so when Paul began a ministry, he wanted to stay on topic no matter what it was. Whether he was talking about the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue, he would use their own scriptures to show them that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Or if he was in Athens, as we just read, he was going to take that altar that he saw that had the unknown God uh, sign over it and use that as a starting point to bring his audience to Jesus Christ. And that should be our theme when we evangelize. Jesus Christ is the theme. We should get eventually in a conversation, if we're witnessing to somebody, to Jesus Christ and what he means to us and what he means to the person that we're talking to. But the second thing that Paul always did, he always spoke the truth. And he spoke the truth without fear. Think about it. He was ready in any synagogue to stand up and give an exposition of the scriptures. He had no fear of these great men who were leading these synagogues. And he, when he went out into the marketplace, which he did here in Athens, he started engaging people. And we weren't there. We don't know exactly how he did it. But he was in the marketplace talking to people. And then when he was invited to talk to the most learned people in Athens, he was ready. He had no fear. He said, great, I can go and talk to these people. And we've seen Paul in action in other places, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Philippi. In each place, Paul had no fear of man. And if you had let him, if God hadn't restrained him, he would have kept talking about the Lord Jesus Christ until he was martyred. But Paul always left 
in time that he was able to go somewhere else and preach the gospel somewhere else. And so Paul stayed on topic. He always wanted to lead the conversation to Jesus Christ. Paul spoke the truth. He didn't beat around the bushes. He didn't uh, kind of diminish the truth. And then Paul always started where his audience was. And so in Athens, he had an audience that was biblically illiterate. They did not know anything about Jewish scriptures. They may have heard about a Jewish God, but that was about it. And Paul geared his discussions to people who knew nothing about the scriptures, didn't even understand what he would talk about if he had spoken directly from the Bible. You remember, in contrast, when he was in Berea, those Bereans knew their scriptures. And so when Paul spoke to them, these Bereans, they were coming right behind Paul and saying, uh, 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 did you, is that accurate what you said? They looked in their scripture. Oh yeah, okay, Paul, you, that's right, that's what we have. They were ch- double-checking Paul at every point along the way. These Athenians had no way of double-checking what Paul had to say. Paul had to approach them in a very different way. And oftentimes we, as Christians, we meet somebody who is biblically illiterate. We need to find a bridge, so to speak, a way of relating to that person so we can bring them into the discussion about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Paul always left the message to God. He surrendered the results to God. And we have a hard time sometimes saying, I have talked to this person over and over about the gospel, and nothing is happening. They know what I believe, but they're just going about their life the same way. Nothing has changed. And nothing is going to change unless God works in that person's heart. No matter what you do, you cannot convert a person. It's God who converts people. And so how did this work out for Paul in Athens? What approach did he take in this very non-Christian culture? It was really a culture that was so different than what Paul was familiar with in Jewish culture. And in some ways, the culture is, has some similarity to where we are today. Not exactly, but it has some similarity. So what did Paul do? Paul prepared. Paul talked to people, and then Paul proclaimed the gospel. And so that's our outline for the rest of our time together. So how did Paul prepare? Most likely, the first thing he did when he got to Athens, he went around to see the sites of Athens. Athens was a beautiful place. There were buildings there that are still copied today. In some of the buildings, if you go to any any town that has some bigger buildings in them, those columns are columns that are Greek design. 
designed back then. And so Paul went around and just enjoyed the architecture, I am sure. It was a beautiful place. He looked at the artwork. He looked at all these sculptures. And then he started to notice something. Everywhere there were these little idols, big idols, temples. It seemed like the most beautiful temples, beautiful buildings were temples. And in Athens, and I have never been there, but I've talked to people who've been there. There is this like rocky hill right next to the city of Athens called the Acropolis. And on the top of that rocky hill is a temple called the Parthenon. Have you heard of the Parthenon? The Parthenon was probably the most beautiful building in the entire world, and some people consider that the design and architecture of that building is the most beautiful building ever made by men, and you can, today can find some places where they have copied the architecture of the Parthenon for our enjoyment and just because it's a very functional plan for a building. And Paul saw all these things. They had a 60,000-seat auditorium in Athens. They had music halls that were beautifully decorated in Athens. They had art galleries. They had all these schools and universities in Athens. And there were statues everywhere. Pliny, who was a historian, a Roman historian, said in the time of Nero, which is around the time that Paul was there, Athens had well over 25,000 public statues. And most of those statues were idols, and some were people. And so Paul probably couldn't turn around in the city without seeing an idol of something or a person that people were idolizing who had his statue sitting there. Another historian wrote, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. There were so many of these things. Well, what was Paul's response to this idolatry? We read in our passage that he, he became agitated. His spirit was provoked. He was distressed. Oh, he, he was probably thinking that he is surrounded by idols and he didn't worship any of them. He wasn't interested in them. And then, not only was he surrounded by idols, it wasn't like a museum. People were going to each of these little temples and each of these altars and they were taking care of them and worshiping and giving honor to these idols. And so every morning when someone got up, they worshipped a certain idol. They would go to the idol. They would dust it off. They might adjust uh, a few things around there. They would give a small offering and then go on their daily business. And Paul was thinking to himself, these people are honoring and glorifying the wrong gods. Paul was provoked. He was moved to want to share the news of the gospel to these people who are obviously so full of worship of idols. And isn't that a motivation for us in evangelizing? We know that Jesus commanded us to tell others about the gospel. 
And we know that sometimes we see people who are lost in sin and our heart goes out to them and we want to talk to them about how they can be forgiven of those sins. But Paul here was seeing that God was not honored in any way by how the people were acting in Athens. They were honoring every which God, of which there were thousands of them in this city. I think we would find it a beautiful place and a horrifying place at the same time. So what did Paul do? He started to talk to people. And we read that he did talk to the Jews in their synagogue, but that's a once a week kind of thing. And we don't read that much happened there. But then Paul went to the marketplace. And in the marketplace, they call it the Agora. It was kind of like a mall of some sort, an outdoor mall, where there were people buying and selling. There were schools being held in this mall. There were places where you could sit down and talk to people. And Paul started to talk to people in the Agora. You can go there today. They have excavated the Agora in Athens, and you can walk the street which was the Agora, and probably step in the same places that Paul had stepped in the Agora. It's a fantastic place to visit if you ever have the opportunity. And Paul seems to have adopted a Socratic method of dialogue. Perhaps he was in the Agora, and he would have noticed, uh, he would have noticed some beautiful piece of artwork. And he would have said to the person, do you know who's more creative than this artist? Or he may have asked people, where do you think people came from? He would have asked questions and he would have had a dialogue in order to bring people to the realization that there was something else out there that they needed to believe. And then we read that Paul attracted Epicureans and Stoics. Do you remember them from high school history class or college history class? And they came and disputed with him. These people wrote a lot of stuff. And the Epicureans, they kind of thought, ah, gods, all these gods around here, they're not interested in you, they would have told you. They, uh, these gods are interested in themselves. You don't have to do anything because a god is going to help you or a god is worried about you. You just worry about yourself. And so, worry about yourself. Well, you might as well uh, just pursue pleasure. And when we talk about the eat, drink, and be merry... That is kind of a misnomer about Epicureans, but they wanted to live a life in which they enjoyed themselves. Nice and serene, no drama, no passion, but just genuinely a calm, blissful life. The Epicurean lifestyle. But the Stoics were another school, and they were always in competition with each other. They believed in a god, a supreme god, but this god was more of a pantheistic god. 
God was everywhere and in everything. And so they tried to live in harmony with their God. And so they became fatalistic. As life flows on and I'm sick, I guess that's what is going to happen to me. If life goes on and good things happen to me, yeah, I'm in a good groove. That's how the Stoics would live. And we have, we say someone is a Stoic, it means they don't show much emotion because they're not responding to what's happening to them because they figure that's just going to happen to me. I don't need to respond. Paul must be admired. He seemed to be able to speak to these people. And he seemed to be able to relate to them in some way. And today, we would like to see more people like Paul who are able to go into the marketplace and engage people who think totally differently than what we do. Instead of confrontational, we would like to see people who are engaging, who are able to bring out arguments that we can really have a discussion about life and about how to live. And so Paul's teachings became somewhat misunderstood. They called Paul a babbler which in the Greek originally meant a seed picker, which kind of described little birds. You know, if you throw a bunch of seed on the ground and a bunch of little birds come and they start picking up the seeds. That's what they were calling Paul, seed picker. But, but the term became more of the idea that he was just taking ideas and then he was starting to spout out a bunch of stuff, maybe nonsense. And they're just calling him a seed picker. What does he know what he's talking about? However, after a while they realized what Paul was saying wasn't just blather, wasn't just talk. He had something real to say. And Paul was probably talking about morality. He was talking about death. He was talking about, about uh, judgment. He was talking about the resurrection. He was talking about a need for a savior and salvation. And from our text, it seems like they thought Paul was talking about two new deities. There was this Jesus, who is a God, and, um, we'll just say it, Anastasis, who is a God. Well, anastasis in Greek means resurrection. So there's Jesus, this male god, who had a female escort named resurrection. And so the Greeks thought he was talking about two new gods, and that's why they wanted to bring him to this council to make sure that what he was teaching wasn't a problem. And so one of the functions of this council was to supervise any education that was going on. And it appeared that Paul was beginning a school. And he had come from the outside. So we need to make sure that he isn't going to become an enemy of the state in what he is teaching. And so they invited Paul to the area up. 
to the Areopagus to speak. Now, if you are a Christian and you are talking about some Christian concepts to people who don't know anything about Christianity, you can expect to be misunderstood. Sometimes people think that Christians are a threat to society. And so we see in nations like China or Hong Kong where Christians are persecuted because they're seen as a threat to their way of life. Sometimes Christians are, are thought of as being problematic. Christians are not allowed to promote their religion in various places. As we were saying at the lunchtime, you can't go into a mall today and hand out tracts or even try and engage people in a mall. Pretty soon a security guard is going to come over and say, you can't do that, and they might just escort you to the door. Christians are being misunderstood in our society, just as Paul was misunderstood. The Christian point of view is dismissed in our society. We don't want to listen to what you have to say. Let's listen to other experts instead. That's what's happening here. And so Paul prepared. Paul talked to people. And then Paul had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those elites, to those philosophers, to the council who was going to determine whether what Paul was saying was allowed to be taught in the city. Luke has given us a very short synopsis of Paul's uh, lecture. I call it the Reader's Digest version of Paul's, uh, I, I don't want to call it a sermon because a sermon is usually given to believers. He gave a lecture. He gave uh, information. And so it took us less than two minutes to read it. I think Paul spent a few more minutes with the council than two minutes. But let's see what, what we are told because he gave enough information for several to be converted. And Paul was a master. We don't know anyone else who's quite like Paul. He skillfully blended bridge-building statements followed by words of confrontation. And so he pointed out areas of agreement, and then he pointed out areas of differences. And that's how we need to think. And so the first thing he does, he gives kind of a backhanded compliment. Do you know what a backhanded compliment is? It's one that could be taken as a compliment or maybe an insult. And so he says, you know what, I was looking around and uh, he says, says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And he probably looked around and he was surrounded by statues of various idols and other famous people. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription. You see what Paul is doing? The, the, the Epicureans would have agreed with Paul. 
It's folly to worship all these idols that you're mentioning. They would have agreed with Paul. They said, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. The, uh, <clears throat> and then the, they would think worship is a waste of time. But then Paul made a point of contact. He said, I found an altar to an unknown God. And this is a, the, these altars were not only in Athens. They were in other places of the world that archaeologists have found. And so Paul had a way of coming to this group, which was mostly Stoics and Epicureans, to talk to them about this unknown God. And so in Acts 17, 24, he says, this God made the world and everything in it. And he said, this God was a creator. Now, when Paul gave this presentation, nowhere in that presentation did he quote from scripture. Sometimes you think, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to witness to other people. I need to know my Bible. I need to know some verses. I need to know that Roman road of those verses that you need to know. I need to be able to hit the people with these verses. Paul didn't use any verses. He just had a discussion, but what he said was based on scriptures. <clears throat> we read in Isaiah, thus says the Lord God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Paul was saying things in his own words that are said in scriptures. And so he was telling the truth. He was explaining what it was. And so that's what Paul was doing. And so Paul proclaimed the scriptures without the scriptures. And Paul would have explained that this God is not a God that lives in a temple. And so Paul might have been looking at his listeners and he would have said, the God I'm talking about doesn't live in a temple and he might have pointed to the Parthenon which was this fantastically beautiful building with a fantastically beautiful woman, Athena, in the Parthenon as an object of worship. And the Greeks were known for their beautiful sculptures of people. They knew exactly the proportions that people, that an ideal person would be like. They studied these things. And so here was the most beautiful woman who could be portrayed in the most beautiful temple. And Paul pointed, this God doesn't live in a temple. And then he would have pointed up and he would have said, this God lives in the heavens. The earth is his footstool. How in the world could you make a temple for a God like that? And then Paul would have gone on to explain, this God knows you. 
Now, what Paul is doing, and he's talking about a God who's so different than the Epicurean view of God and the Stoic view of God, that he was just blowing their minds. The Epicureans believed that gods didn't care what went on in this earth. And now Paul is telling them, I am telling you about a God who cares about you, who's interested in you and how you behave. That was an affront to the Epicurean mind. The Stoics, they would have thought their God wasn't really a God that had uh, interaction with men, their God was more of a force or more, more, I hate to think about it, but more of in everything. And so what we're seeing is that these Epicureans, surrounded by all these idols, were kind of like practical atheists. They might have, on their way to their philosophy class, gone to an altar and did a little thing there and then went to class where they said they didn't really believe in God. The Stoics who believed that God was in everything, they didn't think much of this concept either. They were pantheistic. And just as Paul did, we can use the idea that God is a personal God as a way to create a discussion point with someone who is an atheist or a practical atheist or someone who believes in one of the Eastern religions where they believe that there is a more pantheistic God or a God that's in everything. Our concept of a God from a Christian perspective is very different than the concept of God in most of the world. Paul even used the words of one of their poets, Aratus. We can find his writings. And he wrote, we are indeed his offspring. Well, Aratus was not talking about God. He was talking about Zeus. And so Paul's using his words. And he's saying, oh yeah, this is, this is what you wrote. Well, this isn't about Zeus. This is about God. God has created Man. And then finally, in verses 29 through 31, Paul comes to the point. Paul says, This God who created all nations, created all people, he summons all people to repent of their sin by turning to a man who has been resurrected from the dead to judge the world. This must have flown right in the face of the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that death was final. They didn't even believe that man had a soul. When you die, you die. That's it. Nobody continued after death. And that helped in their philosophy. That helped them in saying, you might as well make the most of your life while you're alive. Because after you're dead, you're dead. Nothing is going to continue on. And the Stoics had a completely different perspective. Once they died, their soul became part of the universal God. 
And it's compared to like, when you're living, you're like a little drop. When you die, that drop drops into the ocean. And you're just absorbed into the waves and the currents of the ocean. That's it. You're now in that wonderful, wonderful place. Have you heard something like that before? This is an Eastern religion concept. Paul is saying, no. When you die, there's going to be judgment. You are going to have to talk about what you did in this life and be judged. For these Greek philosophers, it was going to be a struggle to even understand the gospel. Just as we have a struggle when we talk about what we believe to others. And there are things that are problematic for us to explain to others, much less for them to understand what we're talking about. There's the problem of sin and repentance. Because how do you know what is a sin? We say, well, the Bible is our standard. But if you don't know about the Bible, what standard do you have? This could become a point of discussion with somebody. How do you know what is right or wrong? How do you know what is called a sin? Where do you get that from? And this is a point of discussion or the problem of resurrection. Houdini, you know Houdini? He was a magician. He was an escape artist. When he was dying, he told everyone around, I am going to escape death. Has anyone ever seen Houdini after he died? No one. He did not escape. He never came back. But if you don't believe in resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of people, how do you witness to them? If you're witnessing to that people who thinks you're a drop going to drop in the ocean and just get part of that big, big ocean, nirvana or whatever they might call it, how are you going to talk to them about a resurrection? How are you going to talk to that atheist who doesn't believe that there's anything after death? When you're dead, you're dead. And Paul must have used all the reasons he knew to demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead. He talked about eyewitnesses. He talked about prophecies. He talked about lives that were changed. We can do the same thing. And then there is a problem of the judgment. Judgment either causes people to think about what they're doing, to repent, believe, or it causes people, eh, they harden their hearts. I don't care. What happens, what happens? Because they have no concept of a holy God. And then... One more problem that becomes an issue when you're talking to people like the Stoics and Epicureans, the problem of forgiveness. 
can you really be forgiven by what you have done in this life? The Epicurean would say, there's no need for forgiveness. I'm just going to die, and that's it. The Stoic is saying, well, everything's going to be washed away. Everything is going to be okay. I'll be in that happy place forever, just part of all of it. How can you talk to somebody who has that point of view? Amazingly, when Paul was done speaking to the council, two people are mentioned who were converted. Dionysus and Damaris. And there were others. And so... What does that tell us about our own witness? We live in a place, a culture, which is post-Christian. It is pagan. It is anti-God in many ways. But Paul has laid out foundations of thought that are needed for people to understand the gospel. And so if we can get them to start to think about sin, if we can get them to think about life after death, if we can get them to think about the need for repentance, a need for salvation, we have done our job. But this is not an overnight conversation. I can't go in the grocery store and talk to the cashier and the cashier is converted by the time I leave the store unless a miraculous work of God has happened. This is something that is going to happen over time. And so we need to pray that the Lord brings people to us that we can have that give and take conversation about these topics. Because that's how God has worked it in this world. And we, in some ways, are very much caught up in our own little culture to forget how people really view things outside of where we live. And so those are the things we need to teach people about God, we need to teach people about how God is in control. We need to teach people about what human nature is really like. And then we teach about God's plan for salvation, that we have a very gracious God. And so let's pray that we have some opportunities to, to begin to witness. I say begin to witness to people even if we can only give a small part of what they need to know to be saved.